Good morning. <laughs> the mic is on now. So we read Genesis 2, verses 23 through 25, and now we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we pause in our morning to join together in prayer with Your Word open before us because it is Your Word, not the thoughts of men, not the religious experiences of those who have come before, but Your very Word spoken to us. In this morning, as we come to the topic of marriage, we ask that You would help us to see what is in Your Word. Help us to learn of you what you would have us know about marriage, about what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. Help us as well to learn how this great union of a man and a woman points us to Christ in the church and our union with Him. I pray that you would help us in this time not to be distracted by anything outside not even to be distracted by the things that perhaps we have brought in our hearts, perhaps concerns that this topic brings up for us or pains from the past or fears for the future. We submit those to you. And we ask that you would minister to your people this morning by your Spirit. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we uh, spent some time looking at uh, Jacob and his uh, relationships and his marriages, and, uh, and we saw that there were a number of problematic issues regarding Jacob and his marriages. First of all, that they were plural marriages. Uh, he was um, in, in something of a confused household, uh, to say the least. We saw all the dysfunction that went on there. Um, we saw that, that uh, Leah doesn't alert Jacob. We don't know why, but when Jacob thought he was marrying Rachel and they had gone through the ceremony and all of that, and then, uh, and then when he goes into her, he finds that uh, the, the next morning he finds that it was Leah he was with all the time. 
Why didn't she say anything? We have no idea, but she didn't. That's a, that's a problem. And we see um, that when his first marriage didn't work out, when his first uh, wife wasn't the one he thought, what was his solution? To add a, another wife into that situation, to take another step, marry another person. That was a solution that he agreed to anyway that he thought would solve that problem. And we saw, of course, that throughout the course of his uh, life and in the chapters that we looked at last week in Genesis, that he doesn't love his wife Leah. And you see the difficulty that gets them into. And then we see that uh, Rachel, uh, when she comes to him because she can't conceive, that rather than pray for her, instead he basically yells at her and uh, gets angry at her, and uh, that's a problem. And we saw that at various points, both of his wives, when they couldn't conceive at various times, they gave their handmaid to him, and he accepted that situation. So now, essentially, he's got four marriages instead of two. It seems like as you follow that story along in relationship with his, with his wives, that he's basically just there to sire children. That's the role of Jacob in much of that story. And so, having spent so much time uh, looking at the problems in Jacob's uh, marriages and his household, I thought it would be better for us to uh, look at what Scripture has to say on the topic of marriage that we might learn some things, not just uh, in contrast to him, but what does Scripture teach on that topic? What is a better view of marriage? And so we want to open to Genesis chapter 2, where we read um, just a few moments ago, Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 23 through 25, and we see that marriage as it's given and defined is found in those verses. Marriage as it's given and defined. The man, having named all of these animals, finally sees one that is for him. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is, this is for me. She is for me. All of these other animals came in, came in pairs, and I, he was naming them and all of that. But here, finally, is the one that he recognizes as his. And we see in verse 24 the statement, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here's the basis, the very kernel for the biblical teaching on the topic of marriage. We see, first of all, that marriage is God's idea. It wasn't a social convention invented by two people who uh, wanted to uh, embark on this new adventure together. It was, it was God's idea, and so that, that makes it good. And that makes it, uh, as well, it makes it subject to His design to His intentions. And so, a marriage is a key part, and as we work through Genesis, we see how so often that marriage relationship is right uh, at central to the point of attack in a number of ways. And, uh, and so, marriage is God's idea. We see also in verse 24 there that a, a husband and a wife are to leave father and mother. They're to cleave together that they, they leave the household in which they were raised, and they move, and their, their allegiances are different. They don't have to move geographically necessarily, though that's a good idea. But their, their allegiances change, and so now they cleave together. These two become a new unit. They will eventually, most likely, become a new father and mother, but they will cleave together. They will join together in a one-flesh union. That one-flesh union, of course, involves uh, the sexual relationship of husband and wife, and it expresses itself in, in their uh, emotional tenderness for one another, the, the knitting together of souls, as it were. 
And then ultimately, and most clearly, it shows itself in children, uh, usually, that you have in no more literal way do you have the two becoming one flesh than in the birth of a child. Looks like mom, looks like dad. And so this one flesh union involves much of those sorts of things. And we see that in this first uh, marriage here, these two that are brought together, we see that it's innocent. They were both naked and they were not ashamed that uh, there was innocence. There was beauty in this relationship. Shame had not entered the picture. Sin had not entered the picture. It was a blissful marriage like none of us has ever known since that time. And so, what a beautiful first introduction. It's like, a, it's like an unspoiled portrait has come on the scene, and God has given this relationship, and it's, it's wonderful, and it's beautiful, and it's innocent, and it's a paradigm for uh, relationships and marriages that are to come afterwards. But of course, we know that we just read the end of chapter 2. We're familiar with Genesis, and in chapter 3, everything changes. Sin enters the picture, and, and there becomes a problem, and, and the problem even strikes right at the heart of their marriage relationship, that there is difficulty right there. Shame enters the picture, and whereas they had been naked and unashamed, now they desire to cover up their nakedness. They want to hide. There is shame between, not just between the couple and God. We can understand that. They've sinned against God. They've, they've done what God said not to do. And you imagine there to be shame between the people and God. Of course, they would hide from God. That, that makes sense in a number of ways, but there's even shame between the two of them, the two who had sinned together. Now, now they're ashamed of themselves before one another, and they want to hide not just from God, but from one another. And we see that as, as time progresses, we don't have to look very far before we see that marriage becomes a challenge. Marriage becomes a difficulty. It has its moments of bliss. It has its moments of, of wonder and intimacy and maybe, maybe even uh, great moments of those things, but it's mixed as well with the challenges and the difficulties that have entered in because of sin. The man and the woman themselves have changed, and so that has an impact on their relationship. And, of course, we saw a very clear example last week when we looked at Jacob and his uh, wives. And so uh, that is marriage as it's given and as it's defined. But when we turn to the rest of Scripture, and you can be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll go back to Paul's words on these topics, that we see marriage in that picture, in that ideal picture, has to be understood in our terms, because now we are sinful. Turns out you are sinful, and your spouse is sinful, and if you're not married, your future spouse will be sinful. And so it's a different uh, situation. We're, we're in a struggle. And so, of course, the Bible uh, is going to teach us about this, this first human relationship. The Bible is going to teach us about how it ought to be, given uh, the context in which we live. And so we saw in Genesis chapter 2, marriage as it was given and as it was defined. But we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see a comparison between Christ and the church and a marriage between husband and wife. So let's look at the marriage of Christ and the church, first of all. What happens here is Paul, in this a great epistle uh, to the Ephesians, is laying out these household relationships. He's going to talk about parents and their children. He's going to talk about uh, uh, employers and employees or slaves and masters. He's going to talk about this relationship in particular 
husbands and wives. And when he does so, watch what he brings in to this picture. And first, I want us to look at this relationship between Christ and the church. And as I read through this, I want to pay attention to a couple of things. Pay attention to what is said of Christ and his position and his role and what is said of the church and the church's position in relationship to Christ and what is the church's role. And so we'll read through this passage once again, paying attention to those things, what we learn about Christ and the church. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the, of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. So we see, first of all, Christ's position in this relationship is spelled out there in verse 23 that Christ is the head. Christ is the Savior of the church. He's the head. That means He gives leadership. That means He's the one that makes those decisions. Ultimately, He's the one that is in charge. He is the head, and the church is His body. He's responsible. He's the one that's in charge. And He Himself is its Savior. The body exists because Christ saved the body. Christ is the Savior of that body. He is the one who has given salvation, has worked salvation on their behalf that they can even be the body of Christ, that they can even be the church. He has worked salvation. And so right off the bat, you can see what the relationship between Christ and the church is going to be as we see the position that He has in this. Verse 24, now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You see what Christ is doing? You see the role of Christ? That he loved the church. And that love motivated him to give himself up for the church. He has that kind of care. He has that kind of compassion. He has that kind of love to do what is right, to do what is best, to work the salvation for the church. Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her. He had a purpose for doing so, that he might sanctify her, verse 26 that having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He sanctifies her. He sets the church apart for Himself. He sanctifies her. And He cleanses her by forgiving her sins. And so we see that, that Jesus is accomplishing the salvation of His people both by dealing with sin and by setting her apart for Himself. So that even now we are called the body of Christ. We are called Christians. We are named by Him. We are set apart for Him, by Him, and that has been accomplished by the shedding of His own blood and the cleansing us of our sin. And He has a purpose for this. Verse 27, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. You see, 
it's almost a shame to work through this as fast as we're going to. But you see how crucial is the work of Christ. It is, it is all important in the salvation of the church. That He undertook Himself to do this. And in so doing, He gave Himself. He gave Himself for our forgiveness of sins, to redeem us for Himself and set us apart for Himself, to present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle. He did all that was required to cleanse us, to purify us, to make us to be without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing, that she, we, might be holy and without blemish. He's created for Himself a bride. If you want to read a picture of this, read Ezekiel 16. There's this great picture that goes on and on about how God has, has found this baby and he has, he has, uh, she, she's, she's been left alone and she's left in her filth, and, and, but He does all that is required to cleanse her, to raise her up, and then ultimately, having, having protected her, having provided for her, having cleansed her and done all of these things, ultimately He takes her to Himself when she's mature, when she's prepared, when she's been cleansed. He does all of that work. And that's what we see right here, Christ doing. And so we talk about the position of Christ in the church, of course, head and Savior. But we see that His role is that He loved the church and gave Himself for her to sanctify her, to cleanse her, that He could present her to Himself spotless and holy and without blemish. He has undertaken all of that for us, to present us to Himself in that manner. And so, that's the relationship of Christ to the church. That's the position of Christ in relationship to the church. That's the role of Christ for the church. That is what He has accomplished. Now, what about the church's position? What about the church's response, the church's role in regard to Christ? Well, Look at verse 30. We are members of His body. He has done that work for us. He has nourished us. He has cherished us because we are members of His body. We get to belong as members to His body. That's our position. That's where we stand. He's the head, He's the Savior, and we are the body. So what's our role? Well, you'll have to turn back to verse 24 and you'll see what that role is. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives to their husbands. The role of the church is to submit to the head, to receive His saving and cleansing and nourishing and cherishing ministry. How often we get this uh, turned around, how often we get confused about what our role is and we think that that we wouldn't consciously think this, but we end up thinking that we're contributing something to Him. And even the way we call this on a Sunday morning, this is our service. And so we think about what we do here on a Sunday morning. Are we primarily giving something to God? Or are we primarily receiving from God? By looking at this passage and looking at other passages, we are in the position of reception from God. Yes, we bring service and, and we're thankful for those who serve in different ways, and, but we are contributing nothing to Him and He is contributing everything for us. 
And so when we come here, we hear the Word of God proclaimed, we pray together, we encourage one another in fellowship, and uh, we, we sing together. Yes, we're, we're rendering service. But ultimately, and finally, it is God doing a work in our heart because our position is as His body and our role is to receive from Him. Just as we received salvation, we continue to receive even in this capacity. And so, look down at verse 32. I know we're kind of working through this uh, out of order a little bit, but what Paul is doing here is he is talking about marriage, but he's weaving in the gospel and weaving in Christ in the church as he does so in such a way that will uh, illuminate for us. Look what he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, that in Paul's mind, there is such a close connection between Christ and the church and husband and wife that, that the two are read together in the same paragraph. The two explain one another in, in helpful ways for us. And so the marriage relationship helps us to think about the relationship between Christ and the church. Where Christ is the husband and the head, the church is the bride. That Christ and the church have been joined together as one flesh in marriage. They've been joined together. And, and in this context of our salvation, this means that in our being joined together, our sins have been placed upon Him and punished in Him. And in our being joined together in this, in this union, that means that His righteousness that He has accomplished is credited to us. You see, what's, what's His is ours, and what's ours has become His. We are united with Christ in that way. We have become one with Christ. So what a blessing it is to be a Christian. When we read of Christ and His standing with the Father, when we read what the Father thinks of the Son, we get to be included in that because we are in Him and we receive those great benefits. And so we see that the relationship between husband and wife explains for us and helps us to understand the relationship between Christ and the church. But likewise, and as we move on to this next uh, section here, the marriage of a husband and a wife is explained for us and clarified for us, and we receive direction in it by looking at the relationship between Christ and the church. So let's move on, point number three here, the marriage of a husband and wife. We're going to look through the same section, but now, having gleaned what we can about the relationship between Christ and the church, the, the relative positions that they have towards one another and the, the relative roles that they have for one another, now let's, let's glean uh, teaching for ourselves regarding husbands and wives. And so first of all, we will... Uh, think about wives as we work through this section, right? We see the right off the bat, of course, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As the church submits to Christ, so the wife submits to her husband. There's a position of submission. Of course, 
Uh, submission is a, a, a dirty word in our day and age. But basically what it means is to place yourself under the authority of another. To, to bring yourself under another in a position where they are in authority over you. It says nothing about ultimate value. It says nothing about ultimate worth. It says nothing about who you are beyond this place in submission to authority. And that's the nature of that. I have a, uh, in my mind, it's almost like, you know, getting, getting in line behind your husband. You're, you're going where he's going and you just get in line and it doesn't say anything negative about you. It doesn't say anything lesser about you. And, and notice he specifically says this, this submission is not to all men, not to all husbands, but it's to your husband. That's the relationship that it's not that men are somehow superior or men somehow have authority over women. There's nothing like that in here. It's wives, submit to your own husbands. And he says in everything. Look at verse 24. Submit to your own husbands in everything. This is pretty extensive. We'll talk more about what that means. But you see, this relationship is defined by this by this head relationship. The husband is the head of the wife, verse 23, as Christ is the head of the church. This is the way he's designed marriage. And when we went through Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 particularly, and we saw the creation of man and woman, we, we noted at that point that Adam was created first and then Eve was taken from him. There's a, there's a distinction, there's a difference, and there's an order there. We saw that the instructions were given to Adam, though uh, Eve was included in those later as well. And so it shouldn't surprise us that there's an order, that there's a, a, an authority structure within the relationship. And of course, he is uh, insisting upon that here in Ephesians chapter 5. And so um, we'll get to how to apply that in a moment. But that's what we learn from this passage about wives. Now, husbands. What about husbands? Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. You're the head of your wife. He's going to use the example of loving your own body, taking care of your own body. Love your wife, verse 25. Look at verses 28 and 29. The same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so, love your wife. And so, he's basically saying here, care for your wife as you would care for yourself. It's what's best for her, and it will ultimately be good for you as well. And that's the instruction. I I uh, always tease husbands when I teach this passage that, of course, uh, week one or the beginning of the message is, wives, submit to your husbands, and, and, uh, and that's not always uh, received with uh, the greatest of ease, but then I move on to husbands, and I, you know, they're thinking, hey, my wife's supposed to submit to me, this is the greatest thing, and then we move on to husbands, and the first thing we read is, love your, your wife as Christ did the church and gave himself for her. That this kind of love that we're talking about between a husband and a wife, where the husband is loving his wife, means that he is laying down his life for his wife. 
He's not getting ahead by stepping on her. He's giving his life for her and for her very good. And so, what a, what a beautiful picture when it works the way it ought to. And so, he summarizes in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects or fears her husband. It's very simple, right? I could say amen and be done right there and you would have the basic instructions, what has been taught in this section. And it's stuff you've all heard before. You've all heard it preached. You've heard about this relationship. You see that it has been messed up by sin and yet you've heard this teaching. But what are some implications for us? Because we want to bring this home. This is, this is on the page. Perhaps it's foreign information for us. Perhaps it's old hat information. But what does it mean for us? We're not just trying to teach a, a class on marriage, but we want to talk about its implications. First of all, the picture that is marriage helps us to understand our own salvation. When we think about salvation, we need to be, be able to think about it in similar terms to our own marriage. That reconciliation with God is possible only because we are in Christ. We've been joined together with Him in one flesh, as the language of this passage uses. We've been joined by faith, and so what is His is ours. Luther, in trying to explain to his congregation the nature of justification, used a picture of a king who took for himself a bride. The bride was from the streets, and she was uncouth, and she was unpolished, and she was not well-dressed, and she wasn't fit for uh, the, 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 the ball yet. She wasn't fit for the court she wasn't fit for all of the high society she was going to have to move into. And yet, the king took her as his wife. What does that mean about her? The fact that she doesn't yet know how to behave in polite society doesn't mean that she is not his wife. She is still the wife of the king. She has become royalty, though she doesn't look like it yet because of what He has done, because she has been united to Him, because she has been joined to Him. And folks, that's, that's you and me before God. We don't always look like we're very fit for polite society or high society for sure. Sometimes you can still see our old rags. You can still see uh, our behavior uh, shows that, yeah, we were kind of raised in the streets and, and not really fit for the court. But He is working in us to accomplish that, but though it is still true of us that we bear marks of where we came from, yet it is true that we are united with Christ our Savior, and we have right standing before God because of what He has done and because we are joined to Him. And so what's His becomes ours. And so this picture of Christ and the church being compared to our marriage helps us to think about how we are united with Christ by faith. And so that salvation is accomplished for us by what Christ has done. That salvation is kept for us by what Christ has done because He is our head. He is our Savior. So as we think about our own marriages and think about the instructions that we have here in regard to our marriages, it ought to help us think about 
what it means to be united with Christ in salvation. A second implication. Our marriages show for the world to see the wonder of our salvation. How we relate to one another, the fact that we have been joined together in, uh, in, in, in this joyful union. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we have, we have gladly come together in this relationship where the husband is the head, the wife is in submission. It's a, it's a joyful picture of this salvation. It helps us to explain how it is that Christ could love people like us because we are joined with Him. We've been made one with Him. That Jesus has undertaken to move us from a place where we were alienated from Him and to make us His own body. Think about it. We even take His name. And we are known to the Father by His name. Why is it that you and I can come before God It's because of the name of Christ. It's because we've been joined to His Son that we have access to the Father. We take on His name as a a bride takes on the name of her groom and becomes known by that name. So we are known to the Father. And so mutual love and the affection between husband and wife shows Christ's love for the church and hers for Him. A third implication here, the fact of our marriages, that our marriages reflect Christ in the church should help us to value them even more than we do. It raises it in our estimation and makes them even more valuable. Uh, marriage is a holy and a godly thing. And finally, reflecting on the relationship helps us to understand how husbands and wives should relate to each other that the husband is the head of the wife. That's different than saying the husband ought to be the head of the wife. Part of what this means is a very sobering fact, by the way, for husbands. Ought to be. It's a very sobering one for this husband. The fact that the husband is the head means that his actions, his words, his decisions have a greater impact on his wife than vice versa. That'll sober you up. The husband being the head means that his actions, his life has a greater and outsized influence on his wife than vice versa. That's a a sobering and important thing for us to remember. I think it would help us husbands to look at our husbanding a little bit different if we thought about it in those terms of our impact on our families, on our wives. So what are the points of application? Points of application, first of all, to the husbands. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wife. Lay down your life. We're we're so bent on getting ahead. We're so uh, bent on accomplishing our purposes. Lay down your life for your wife as Christ did for the church. We need to think in terms of what is good for our family, what is good for our wife, and be willing to pursue that. That doesn't mean we don't have our own dreams. doesn't mean we don't have our own ambitions, our own uh, plans in life and the things that we're going to do. But as we are pursuing those things, the tendency can be to leave our wife behind. 
We need to be willing to lay down our life that some of those things we would pursue would be at her expense. So don't pursue those things. Lay down your wife for your life. There's a a book by uh, a man named Ed Wheat that has some very, very practical advice on this topic. It's called Love Life for Every Married Couple. And he talks about the best marriage. And by the way, this is great advice for men, extremely practical, and it would be good advice for wives as well. So how do you have a best marriage? And that's a, it's an acronym there. B, bless her. This is simple. Like you can practice this today. This isn't some conceptual thing. Bless her. Speak well of her. This is the way you can lay down your life for your wife. Some people, uh, some men, some women, want to throw the spouse under the bus. I think it makes them feel taller or something. Speak well of her. Show her kindness. Tell her thank you. She notices. Pray for her. Bless her. If you didn't write that down, husbands, write it down now. Secondly, so that's B, E, edify her. Speak well to her. Build her up. This, is, uh, this becomes evident to people uh, around you, people who observe your marriage, uh, how you speak to your spouse, how you speak about your spouse when your spouse is not there. I remember there was a, <clears throat> there was a business here in, uh, in our community a decade or more ago that in a one particular office there were a number of women who were working together and they, they got into the habit of talking bad about their husbands. Well, you know what the next step was in this particular office? Those, those wives began to leave those husbands, divorced them, and moved on. They had encouraged one another to uh, speak negatively about their spouse, and it had great consequences. So edify her instead. Edify him instead. Speak well to him. Speak well uh, uh, to her. Build them up. Thirdly, the S, share with her. Do things together. Listen to her. Learn from her. Ask her questions. Share in life together. And then the T, which is what you've all been waiting for, touch her in non-sexual ways. Okay? Hold her hand. Uh, Kiss her in front of your children. Gross them out. Right? So, very simple, very practical, and, and it seems perhaps even silly to talk about it in the sermon, but it is not. It is not. Another way you lay down your life for her is by leading her spiritually. Christ washes His bride with the water of the Word. Lead her spiritually. Talk about this sermon with her. I think you could probably not be able to get away from talking about your wife or talking to your wife about this sermon. But talk about the sermon with her. Read the Bible with her. Read the Bible to her or at least uh, talk with her about what you are reading to, uh, in the Bible. Lead her spiritually. Pray with her. Pray for her. Don't neglect your own wife. Lay down your life for her. Husbands, that's for you. Wives, submit to your husband. He is the head, even if he doesn't have a good idea of how to be one. He is. Come under his leadership. Follow his leadership in absolutely any way that you can. Verse 24 says, in everything. In absolutely any way that you can, follow his leadership. Respect him. The word here, by the way, is fear. It's the same word as we, as we see up in uh, 521 where uh, Paul has been discussing submitting to one another out of fear 
of Christ, out of reverence for Christ. It's that same word. It's commonly translated reverence or, or uh, it takes, has other meanings as well or other definitions, other translations, but it's the, the concept of fear, the concept of reverence, the respect, have respect for Him. Hold your husband in high regard. The Lord has placed him as your head, and you need to be rightly ordered under his leadership. And if you will do that, by the way, if you will do that, if you'll begin to treat your husband in that way, if you'll begin to respect him in that way, you're not guaranteed to have a great marriage. But I can tell you that you won't have a great marriage without growth in these areas. So husbands, lay down your lives for your wife. Love her sacrificially. Truly looking out for what is best for her in the spiritual realm most of all. And as you do that, your wife will find it easier and easier, by the way, to submit to you. She's commanded to do so all along, but you can sure make her job easier if you'll grow in these ways. Wives, submit yourself to your husband's leadership and care. Show him respect to his face and behind his back. Don't talk bad about him. Don't talk bad to him. And as you treat him in this way, you will see his shoulders go back. You will see his chest come out. And you'll, you'll see him begin to set his jaw to take on the world knowing that he has you at his side. You'll see a change in your husband. If only uh, Jacob had uh, learned these lessons, of, if only his family had been shaped and guided and molded by uh, the teaching here in Ephesians chapter 5. If only our lives and our marriages were shaped this way. What, what change would there be in your home? What change would there be? What change would you pass on to uh, the future generations by the way you treat your husband, by the way you treat your wife? What, what an easy example. What a, what a ready illustration to, dis, to describe and explain the gospel to your children as your marriage is growing in these ways. And so last week we, we saw terrible uh, marriages. Last week we saw uh, a, all kinds of uh, difficulties and problems, and we could look at that and say, ah, Jacob, that's crazy. You know, you got yourself into trouble this way and that way. But folks, you and I get ourselves into trouble in all kinds of similar ways. Perhaps it doesn't look identical. But why is it so hard for us to relate to our spouse? I'm not saying it's always hard, but... Why is that the place that seems to be where the enemy attacks? And the enemy does often attack that exact spot. Well, a couple of reasons. One, it's the first human relationship ever created, put together by God. Do you think it's important to him? Your marriage, our marriages, marriage in general, is the foundation of society. It's the foundation of the family, of course, and, and, and the church. It's the foundation of a community. It's the foundation of society. The enemy, the one who hates all of those things, has a target, and that target is marriage. And so we see in our world all the things that are happening, all the attacks that are going on, and all that, uh, that is being redefined regarding marriage. So one of the reasons it's difficult is because the enemy attacks right there, but there's another reason. And the other reason really doesn't have anything to do with the enemy, it has more to do with you. It has more to do with me, and that's because your marriage relationship is your closest relationship on earth, which means your sin is revealed most clearly in that relationship. Your, your spouse 
uh, knows your sin. Your spouse sees the consequence of your sin. Your spouse has to live day in and day out with your sin. And even that is a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? Yeah, sure, it's a, it's a place of, of, uh, uh, of damage. It's a place of struggle. It can be a place of hardship. It's a place where you, you really get down to brass tacks in your marriage. That's, it's my sin that makes marriage difficult. But as husband and wife learn to forgive one another, as they learn to give grace, as they learn to receive forgiveness and receive grace, as we learn to live with one another as we really are, that's a beautiful picture of the gospel as well. I've said time and again that being a Christian is not about denying our sin. It's not about us uh, saying we have none or we've never had any or, uh, or trying to uh, say that uh, we, we don't have sin in our lives and pretend as if we're righteous before God because of our actions. That's not the Christian character. That's not, now, there, there are those who call themselves Christians who live their lives like that, but, but the fact is that in reality, the, the transparency that there is between a husband and a wife, the, how aware your husband is of your sin, your wife is of your sin, is nothing compared to how aware our God is of our sin. And He still takes us as His own, extending forgiveness to us, extending grace to us, that, uh, uh, making it so that we even get to be called by the name of Christ as Christians, the body of Christ. We've been brought in despite our sin. What a, what a beautiful picture is a marriage that is a biblical marriage with the giving and the receiving of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so last week we saw Jacob's very questionable household, to say the least. But the Bible advocates a better picture of marriage. And here we see it. Here we read about it in this section, and it's not easy. It's not really something that's ultimately, even uh, finally within our grasp, to do. But from the garden, the Lord joined a man and a woman who were to cleave together. They were to be joined into one flesh. That's His design from the beginning. And here, Paul has a whole lot more to say about marriage, but as he's talking about marriage, he keeps getting interrupted by the gospel. Even as he's teaching on something as, as basic as the relationship between a husband and a wife, he can't help but talk about Jesus. That ought to give us some instruction. He gives instruction for us as husbands to lay down our lives for our wife. As wives, submit to their own husbands in reverence. A marriage that is growing in these areas is a fruitful one that will bless the children that come from it and the church that gathers with it and the culture that gets to watch from the outside. And even as Paul is talking about marriage, he's conscious that marriage points us to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, Despite our sin, despite all that we bring into it, despite all the problems that we would cause, despite all of the ex explosion uh, and attacks upon sin in our culture, 
despite all of that, it is the picture of Christ and the church. What a beautiful thing that God has reconciled us to Himself as we are joined to Jesus by faith. We become members of His body, His bride, His church. When we are joined to Him, what was His becomes ours as His righteousness is credited to us, as His payment for sin becomes ours as well. He gives us peace with Him. So what a blessing is this marriage. And I thought it would be a shame for us to blow by the discussion of marriage and talk about Jacob and all that he did wrong, all that was problematic, and instead pause and look at marriage so that we can have some encouragement, so that we can have some direction, so that we can have some help. And, and as we've talked about even all these points of application, and you're sitting there thinking, well, that's easy to say. Those are, those are easy things uh, for the preacher to say or for Paul to write down, but I struggle and it is hard for me to do. Folks, part of the glory of the gospel is that the Spirit of God has been placed within you, Christian. And as you seek to honor God, as you, as you seek to bless your spouse, as you seek to relate as, as Paul would have us do here, the Spirit of God empowers us as we do that. And we fail and we confess it as sin and we move on and we forgive one another. But the Spirit of God is at work blessing our marriages as we look to Him, as we trust to Him, as we confess our sin, as we turn from our sin that is so deeply ingrained in us. May we all look to Christ in the midst of this, not just white-knuckling it, trying to do harder, but submitting and realizing, I, I, I'm not a great husband in and of myself. I'm sinful. I need Christ. And He helps us. And this is some ways that He helps us in this passage. I could talk more about marriage, but it is a blessing. Though it is a battleground at times, though it is the place where your sin is going to show itself, it is a place in that very area of weakness, perhaps, that Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect even in weakness. So let's pray for one another. Let's do so now. Father, we come to the conclusion of our discussion of marriage, and, and it's hard to wrap it up, particularly as it points us to Christ and His relationship with the church. I pray that You would help us in our marriages, help us to relate to one another as we ought, help us to lay down our own lives, help us not to insist upon our own way, help us not to demand our own right, help us not to hold our spouse's sins over them. Help us not to live in that kind of bitterness and, and see the outcome, but instead may we live a life transparent before you and before our spouse. May we grow in these ways. I pray that you would help us, strengthen us. These are not natural things for us. A, a wife is told to submit because she needs to hear that instruction. A, a husband is told to love his wife, to lay down his life for her because he needs to hear that instruction. So I pray that you'd work in us by your Spirit, that this wouldn't be theory, that this wouldn't be um, just another sermon that we heard, but that this would be something that gets lived out in our lives by your grace and for your glory. And so I pray for the marriages in our midst. I pray for those who um, 
maybe are thinking about very specific areas that are painful to them in regard to marriage. I pray that you would help them. I pray that you would show them grace and mercy. Where there needs to be repentance, I pray that you would grant that. Father, I pray for your blessing on the marriages that are represented here. We need you. This, this area is such a, an area that gets targeted. So I pray that you'd bless your people. Help us to encourage one another in regard to our families, in regard to marriage. And thank you also that this points us so clearly to Jesus, who is our head, who, to whom we submit, who has done all that is required to redeem us and make us His own, and in whose name we get to be known to you and therefore have access to you and all the blessings that are ours in Christ. So, Father, we're grateful. We pray for your blessing, and we pray for your help. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the many ways that you bless us. So send us forth, we pray, to look to you, to minister to our spouse. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have... uh, I wanted to let you know that I do have a doctrinal or a statement that 